Hi, welcome to the Zanach Talks podcast. My name is Yaakov Bezid. I'm broadcasting to you live from Alone Shvug in the hills overlooking Yerushalayim on a week before Pesach, a week before Passover, Tafshid and Pei, when everybody's in quarantine and it's time to at least get out of the routine and do something new. And that's what I'm going to do here today. For my students from Leva Torah who didn't get to finish Malachim Bet, what I'm going to do now, starting with this podcast, is a podcast on Kings 2, Malachim Bet, beginning to end. And hopefully we'll have something to give some of the flavor of what we've done in class and ideas to think about. So, let's begin. Today's class is going to deal with the chapter 1 of Malachim Bet. Of course, as I've mentioned before, that the division of Malachim into two parts is a artificial division made by scribes who decided that one text was too long. Only in Hebrew print do you see in 1525 that the books are divided into Malachim Aleph and Malachim Bet, Kings 1 and 2. It's actually an artificial division. But more than that, the chapters here seem quite, quite strange. Achav died at the end of Malachim Aleph, and that should be the end of Malachim Aleph, but then it gives me a quick little several-verse summary of Yehoshaphat. We'll talk about Yehoshaphat as the king of Yehuda at this time, and the good and the bad that he does. He's considered one of the good kings of Yehuda, so I'm not going to be too critical, because the Tanakh itself is not too critical. But there are some issues that we have to talk about that are brought out by Divrei Hayamim, um, the Book of Chronicles, and we'll talk about them in its proper time. For now, though, I just want to share with you the last four lines of Malachim Aleph, chap- Kings 1, chapter 22, begin finishes as follows. It mentions, sorry, last three lines. Achaziyahu ben Achav Melech Malacha Yisrael b'Shomron b'Shnat Shvatzrei Yehoshaphat Melech Yehuda. Achaziyah rule becomes king in the seventeenth year of Yehoshaphat, and he rules for two years. Vayatsa Rabbe Ne Hashem Vayelach B'Derech Aviv B'Derech Imo B'Derech Ravam Ben Avad Sherech T Yisrael. He did what was bad in the eyes of the Lord. He went in the path of his father, the path of his mother, and in the path of Yeravam, which is really interesting because his father's path and his mother's path is one path. They both serve foreign gods, the Baal. And then there is, of course, Yeravim bin Avat, who worshipped Hashem, worshipped God, but, of course, did it through golden calves and not in the temple in Yerushalayim, the Beit HaMikdash, which is the separate sin. And he worshipped Baal, he bowed to him, he broke the Lord, just like his father has done. Now, of course, we are left hanging because in chapter 21, Achav does tshuva. Achav repents from his Baal worship. It's a very... Remind me to turn my phone off next time. It's a very, very strange form of um, story. You know, we look at Achav as the great evildoer, the worst king ever of the Northern Kingdom, with some justification. He introduces foreign idols into the worship patterns of the northern kingdom he brings Baal in and it's idolatry once you bring it in it's much harder to get out as we will know but he does do tshuva in fact God tells Eliyahu look this man is doing tshuva go take a look at him see how he humbles himself before me and therefore I'm going to suspend his sentence a suspended sentence meaning I will not punish him in the, his days but I'll punish him in the days of his kids does not mean that no matter what his children do that they are automatically going to be punished. There's nothing to, to avoid it. This is one of the principles I've been taught by Rav Madan, the Rosh Hashiva of Haratun. I've had these arguments with him several times. But I think it's generally true. In the cases in Malachim, for many parts, a suspended sentence says, listen, let's see how if the generations that follow 
learn from your mistakes or whether they continue your, their, your behavior. And so we're waiting with bated breath to what Achazia will do. And the, talk, and the Tanakh, at the end of Malachim Aleph, immediately tells us he's going to worship Baal. But the question is, how is he going to do so? And really, the last three verses of Malachim Aleph, the last three verses of Kings 1, flow directly into Malachim Bet. So we go to Malachim Bet, first chapter, Kings 2 in English. It mentions very briefly, that Ahav's death is not just a religious turning point, but it's also going to be a political turning point. The fact that Yisrael could control Moab, if you know the geography, Moab is southeast of the Dead Sea, whereas Ahav and Yisrael are, you know, from Jerusalem north, that part of Israel, that's a tremendous reach for a kingdom, a mountain kingdom like Yisrael. <coughs> Don't worry, I'm fine. I'm in quarantine just because everybody else is and not for any particular reason. Now, the name of the shear is Fireballs for obvious reasons. But it begins with Ahaziah falling through the latest, i.e. the wooden beams that are intertwined in his upper chamber. He becomes ill, and he turns to messengers and he says to them, go find out whether or not it will live or die. This, of course, is a pattern we've seen before. When Yerubim's son becomes sick, he sends his wife, dresses her up, and tries to get a prediction from Ahiah Shilani, the prophet who appointed him king over the northern kingdom, but obviously was tremendously disappointed with the path that Yeravim took. So Yeravim sends his wife dressed up, of course, even though Achia is blind, he is able to see who she is, see through her disguise. Now along comes Achazia and does the very same thing. But this time, who does he choose to go to? The Navi, our Navi. It's important to know that Elisha is the functioning Navi right now. We have, he goes to Ekron, which is in the southwest in the Felicity area. And he goes to Baal Zvuv, the Lord of the Flies, quite literally. Quite likely it wasn't Baal Zvuv, rather Baal Zvul, which is the Prince of the Lords, the Prince of the Gods, which is a um, name that is often found in ancient inscriptions. However the case may be, he sends messengers. And the whole Rav Samet in his book on Eliyahu, his masterful tomb on Eliyahu, writes that this word Shalach appears seven times in this story. And thing, people are being sent back and forth in the question, who sends what to who? A Malach Hashem immediately appears. An angel suddenly comes in, which shows you how important this is to stop. And he speaks to Eliyahu the Tishbi, and he says, quickly go to the messengers of the Melech of Shemron and say to them, Is there no God in Israel? This is going to be a theme that repeats itself through the first ten chapters of Malachim Bet. Is there a God in Israel? Is God paying attention to what's going on? Eliyahu comes to them and he said, and it's interesting. What's interesting is the text doesn't say, the Malach told Eliyahu to do this, and Eliyahu did this. Rather, the Malach is telling Eliyahu, and Eliyahu is doing it, is subsumed into one verse. A Malach came to Eliyahu, Tishri, saying, go say this. And then it says, if the messengers hear the message and they go back. It doesn't tell me Eliyahu did it, but rather as soon as the Malach speaks, it's as if Eliyahu has already done it, to show the complete unity between the angel and Eliyahu. So the, Eliyahu says two verses. A, is, there, is it because there's no God in Israel that you go in plural form to the Balzvuv, the God of Ekron? Lechem Komar Hashem. Therefore, this is what Hashem says. You went down to the bed, you will go down, you will not, you went up to the bed, literally you 
go up onto your bed, you will not go down in singular form. Meaning Eliyahu here is giving two messages. One, to the messengers themselves. Why are you, in plural form, going to the police team? Do you not realize the Chilo Hashem that you are going? And two, the obvious question, is, the second message is directly towards the king. You went up to this bed, you will not come down again. Okay? And Eliyahu went, and the messengers returned to him, and Eliyahu just left. The messengers returned to him, referring to the king, and say, and the king asked, well, you're back really quickly. Can you please tell me what's going on? And what they do is very interesting. They take Eliyahu's message, and remember, Eliyahu spoke twice, once to them in verse 3, once to the king in verse 4, and they, as it were, combine the messages in a way that both messages are directed to the king as if they themselves are completely innocent. It may be perhaps that they are entirely, you know, that they have done tshuva. This is the way some of the Mepharshim read it. Okay? So let's read what they say. It says, And they say to him, A man came towards us and said to us, Go return to the king who sent you. Speak to the king. And now, only now, this is what the... God said, remember, God says, but gave two messages today, but they put into one, they remove all direction of all blame from themselves, it's all directed towards the king, which tells you that the messengers, these messengers themselves understand the important what they're saying. Is there no God in Israel that you send, not that you are going in plural, but that you send message to ask of Baal's Vuv and Elkron, therefore you will go to the bed, you will not come down from it. And he said to them, so tell me, who was the man who spoke to you? Can you describe him to me? Which is interesting. Why would they feel the need to, you know, he? they don't know who he is. Um, clearly, Eliel has not made known to um, his name. And what's interesting is they come and say, oh, he's wearing a very hairy mantle. Either a, he's a very, he, Baal Seyar, he's very hairy, and he's got this um, leather belt around his waist. Okay. Now, the question is, who is this? And how are they supposed to know that this is... The king of me says, Oh, it's Eliyahu. I knew it. Why does it have to be Eliyahu? Either Eliyahu's look was famous. Achazia had seen Eliyahu combat with his father many times. It may also be that it's understood. Eliyahu, who is not part of society, lives out in... you know, And we're going to see, he doesn't live in the city. He lives out in the wilderness. And therefore, he's adopted this Nazir-like appearance. Immediately, he says, go send for me. Um, he says to his people, go send him and bring me Eliyahu. And he sends a man of 50 and 50 armed men. Now, that's pretty impressive. He explains, why the, by the way, why I would not, why Eliyahu doesn't come to the king. Some suggest, and this is, Eliyahu, you know, is actually afraid. The Marabag gives a very fascinating explanation. He says this is an honor guard. He wants to show honor to the prophet. But that seems so far-fetched from what we know of Ahaziah in... And don't forget, Isabel. Jezebel is still alive. She's running the show from behind the scenes. So there are several possibilities. One, he wants to drag him to the palace so that he should say the prophecy directly to his face. It may be possible he just wants to punish him, or he just wants to kill him because, you know, Eliyahu's still got the death sentence, and he's been taught by his mother this, the way to deal with this prophet, threaten death, and Eliyahu backs down, as, in fact, he did in chapter 19, that he ran away despite his success at Har Carmel. But instead, we have a very interesting give and take. In this case, it's not a give and take that on an equal level. Listen carefully to the words. He said, the man, here's Eliyahu on top of the mountain, and he says to him, Ish Elohim, Hamelech Diber. 
The king has spoken. Remember, the message that the prophet gave was, God has spoken, so says Hashem. Now the king has spoken, i.e., who's got more authority? Clearly the king, not Eliel. And he tells him, come down. He doesn't even have to hint to him what is going to happen. Now the Al-Sheikh, we're going to see, is bothered by Eliel's behavior, but I've got to stand up on my chair right now and tell you exactly what the next verse says, chapter 1, verse 10. And Eliel stands up and he says to the king, the captain of fifty, Im Ish Elokimani, if I'm a man of God, Tered Esh Bina Shamayim Batochaurcha Vamshecha. Let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. In other words, fireballs. And fireballs come flying down, a fire comes down from heaven, consumes him and his fifty men. I love teaching this. This is so much so not much no fun to do this in on a podcast when you should be doing this live, standing on chair and throwing things at students, because that's the way it should be taught. But having said that, you've got to imagine Eliel just standing up there, you know, level 100 wizard, you know, just throwing down this huge ball of fire. The Abarbanel says, this should remind us, by the way, of another story involving Eliel. He's brought down fire before. And for the kings to send men to try to arrest him and to try to force Eliel to do what he clearly does not, you know, it shows Eliel's reminding him, as it were, did you, were you not there at Carmel when I brought down fire? I've done it before, and I will do it again. And I will bring down fire. Remember, Eliel is not the Navi of choice right now. He is the, that job's been handed to Elisha. But Eliel still has the abilities, and if you're going to choose to mess with Eliel, as it were, he's still the Eliel of Har Carmel. And 50, we have now one captain and 50 men done. And now another captain of fifty and his of fifty and his men. Sends another captain of fifty and fifty men. And he said to him, you know, and he raised and he spoke to him. Why does he raise his voice to speak to him? Because at least this king, this second guy is not standing at the edge of the mountain. He's standing a bit far back. He's moved back. So in that respect, he understands what he's doing. Yet he still presumes to say, Ko hamar hamelech, so says the king. Meira, reida, come down right now. So immediately, once again, Eliyahu responds, as only Eliyahu can, Fireball! If I am a man of God, let a fire come down from heaven and eat you and your 50 men. And in fact, this is what happens. Another fireball comes flying down and eats him and his 50 men. It's a great, wonderful story. The Abarbanel points out that this guy, is even even though he keeps his distance, he's still more chatsuf because he's using the words koamar, which is exactly the words of the Navi koamar, Shem now koamar, but also Come down quickly. Who are you to tell Navi to move quickly? So, why does Eliyahu kill these first um, two groups? We have to understand what the the question, real question is, what is Ahaziah doing by trying to um, send these people? So, we have two approaches. The first is the Abarbanels. The Abarbanel says there's no doubt that Eliyahu says that Ahaziah meant to kill him. Therefore, he thought to his, avenge his own death and burn the captain so that Ahaziah would fear and not harm him. And therefore, it's basically a self-defense mechanism. You come too close, I will burn you. Now, the way Abarbanel phrases it is that Eliyahu thought Echazia meant to kill him. 
meaning it's a bit of a misunderstanding. You know, he just thought that, according to Barbara, Akashi just wanted to arrest him and bring him to the palace, but Eliyahu thought, I don't know if he wants to arrest me or escort me or kill me, so therefore, why take a chance? And he burnt them all. Mistake, these things happen. But, of course, that's a very difficult approach to say because we know that, and this is the way for this, you know, to say that Eliyahu burnt 100-plus people as a mistake, that he didn't understand what it was about, ignores both the tone of the speakers, as we've discussed, but also the, we know who's running the, pal the, the palace. It's Akazu, who works in the way of his, when his father was his mother, and his mother's still alive. We know that the um, appearance, you know, you know, his appearance near the capital city must clearly been a taunt to them, and they said, okay, we can't have him nearby. And therefore, Rav Moshe Al-Sheikh writes, he says, you know, if he wanted to give him honor, if it was supposed to be an honor guard, the way the Royal Bug suggests, send two, send four, send a chariot. But rather, you know, he wants to um, come down to the foot of the mountain, and therefore, because this is exactly, you come down. Okay, you come down to the mountain, i.e. there we will harm you, kill you, because you threaten the king, saying that you will not come down from the bed. And therefore, it's a play on, it's a play on what Eliyahu said to the king, your um, fate is going to be. Therefore, they, he says the same thing to him. Now we come to the poor third guy who is sent. Ahaziah has no worry about how many soldiers it's going to take. He sends another group of 50, and one can imagine it's like, you know, like everybody's dropping out of the army really quickly. Um, I got a wife with a mortgage and I really can't be doing this, but the king sends you, you have to go. What do you do? So in fact, here comes the third one. And the third one this time climbs up to Eliyahu. He climbs up the mountain. And he prostrates himself before Eliyahu. And he begged him and he spoke to him. I know you're a man of God. Okay, so he says, please let my soul be, you know, precious in your eyes. And he describes, you've already killed 200 groups, two, two groups of 50. And so please let my soul be precious in your eyes. Generally, one would assume that this is a guy, if one would say it, he's probably panicking, his teeth are chattering. Therefore, he repeats the phrase, There's another approach which, is also believable, which is that the first one comes up and says, you know, there's two things I want from you. A, please don't kill me. Please, please do not kill me. And the second thing that is said is not only don't kill me, but also please come because the king will kill me. All right. Like one can imagine if he doesn't show up, if he comes back and says, listen, I asked him, he said, no, I'm back. The king would kill him too. So his poor soldiers would caught between a rock and a hard place between Eliyahu and the rock and the hardened heart of Ahaziah, so he has to come and beg Eliyahu. And the Malach says to him, go down with him, fear him not. And Eliyahu goes down to the king, and he says to him, and then there's no conversation here. It's not even Ahaziah, remember, Ahab at least gets to speak. Is this you, Eliyahu? But I haven't done this, and they go, and they have this argument back and forth. <coughs> here we have Eliyahu speaking directly, and he supposed to said, this is what God has said, you sent Malachim to ask Baal Nobody has ever done this Chilil before to go to another nation because that implies not only you don't even believe in your own Baal, you go to a Baal of another nation. You know, this is the greatest Chilil Hashem of weakness, therefore you'll go down and die. And he died just like Eliyahu. 
I will spoke which according to the word of God. This is the end of the story. The question is, why is this story here? This is really Aliyah's swan song with his relations with the North. And I think that this story serves several purposes. First of all, it's an important reminder. If we're going to ask questions, well, the sentence has been suspended. What will happen? Will Ahab's children do tshuva like his father? Will they continue the way of their mother? The answer is very clear. They don't, not only do they not do tshuva, they do worse. But I think even more importantly, there's no criticism of Eliyahu's behavior, and there shouldn't be in this story. Because as much as Eliyahu has been fired as a Navi for his harsh message, remember, that is the message of his encounter with God on Horeb, where God says to him, he's not in the lightning and the fire and the earthquakes, but God speaks in a still, small voice. God changes his tone, but Eliyahu doesn't. Kano Kaneti, I've been very zealous for God at the beginning of the story. I've been very zealous for God the other, and God, in a sense, Eliyahu only has one approach, one tool in his um, toolbox, and that's the approach of fire. But there is times when fire is necessary. There are times when you just have to eradicate what there is, and this seals the fate of the house of Ahab. It's appropriate that Elisha is not given this job. Elisha, because Elisha is going to have a much more difficult time, as we're going to talk about in two days. We're going to talk about the general overall view of Elisha, and we'll talk about bears, of course, because who doesn't like stories of evisceration by bears? But we have to look at Elisha's role with the northern kingdom. But Eliyahu is the one who deserves to put the final hammer into the coffin of the house of Ahab, the northern dynasty. A dynasty which we're going to talk about did some good for Israel. It protected them from Assyria. Protect, it made them rich and prosperous with the cost of their identity. And whenever you do that, the Tanakh says, you know, we don't go that far. Eliyahu comes and says, you can't jump between two identities. You can't play this game. You have to be able to pick one. And Eliyahu demands, like God does, you know, perfection and obedience. And this is what Eliyahu is. And when it comes to the apostasy of Anachaziah, who turns to other gods and doesn't, and because he's that, creates the question, is there a God in Elohim Yisrael? Are there no, is there no God in Israel that you must turn to other nations? At that point in time, it's not the role of a peacemaker, of a politician like Elisha. You need to have the Eliyahu's in the world, and this is what Eliyahu's role is. Tomorrow we'll do a quick little summary of how Eliyahu dies. Anyways, this year was entitled Fireballs, and for good reason, and for those who have to finish off before Shabbat, please do so. Gentlemen, have a great day, and we'll continue tomorrow with the first half of Malachim Bet, the first half of Kings 2, Chapter 2, Eliyahu's going to heaven.